From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Friday, December 28th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. China announces new restrictions on the Internet. An American entrepreneur tells us how he adapts to Chinese regulations and prejudices. We had to make sure that the name Dalai Lama isn't anywhere on the website. Otherwise, that would hurt our search results and actually might get that one page that the Dalai Lama is on there banned from searches. Also today, what folks in the Middle East make of the late Norman Schwarzkopf and later a Norwegian football sensation whose phenomenal kicks led to a tryout with the Jets. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, now playing in select theaters. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Chinese already face pretty tight controls on their Internet use. Now it's gotten worse, or better, depending on your point of view. That is Chinese parliamentarian Li Fei. He says the Internet has infringed on the rights of the public and threatened the state, and that society has demanded action. So among the actions the Chinese government is taking is to require Internet users to register names and personal information with service providers. This won't just impact individual Chinese Internet users, though. It could also affect American firms doing business in China. Evan Saunders is CEO of Attract China. That's a marketing organization that helps U.S. companies reach out to Chinese tourists. We are a destination marketing agency that works with destinations like hotels or cities or restaurant chains to help attract Chinese travelers. And we do that all through online marketing to Chinese. Online marketing such as what? We utilize a lot of online and social media channels with the idea that Chinese people are searching and researching about their trips in Chinese while still in China. And we want to expose these destinations and build awareness and buzz about these destinations. Okay, so what are the online tools that you use? Sure. I mean, Chinese aren't searching on Google.com and they're not using Twitter and Facebook for their social media. And in fact, these these websites are often blocked, really, or or pretty much inaccessible. So we have to utilize these other online channels that are widely available in China. And they have their own version of Google, which is called Baidu, B-A-I-D-U.com. And we utilize that and we make sure our websites come up in searches when people are typing in the best hotel in Boston or the most romantic hotel in Boston or uh, a hotel right next to Harvard University. So why not use Google itself? Why use the kind of Chinese version called Baidu? Because, well, Google really is is blocked and and highly, highly censored. And, And Google, if you try to access it in China takes very long time to load, and and Chinese people extremely dislike using it. So describe then a a little more about how you have experienced 
any of the problems that we're talking about here regarding Chinese censorship? I first and foremost experienced it right when I moved to China. And I was involved in social media in America. And I had an online marketing company that helped engage visitors, if you will, through Facebook and Twitter. And when I moved to China, I realized all of these skills I had amassed were, were actually not applicable in this world. And I also realized that the campaigns that people had paid me thousands of dollars to, to work on weren't reaching some of the wealthiest and most traveling tourists in the world. Have you uh, and your business attract China ever experienced any kind of censorship? What we had to navigate, if you will, the most is uh, our client, the Charles Hotel on, on Harvard Square, uh, boasts very proudly that the Dalai Lama has stayed at the hotel on their English website, which is fantastic for their English website. Uh, unfortunately, the Dalai Lama isn't a... Um, a very welcomed person in China. And so when approaching their Chinese website, we had to make sure that the name Dalai Lama isn't anywhere on the website. Otherwise, that would hurt our search results uh, and actually might get our that one page that the Dalai Lama is on there banned from searches. When the Chinese government implements more restrictions, do you feel as though you've been able to find sufficient workarounds for your business or do you feel like, you know, this could be yet another hit? This is, this is a great question, and this is something we absolutely deal with, most importantly because our team is headquartered in Beijing because we have to be. But all of our clients are outside of China, and communicating with them alone is very difficult. Even using Skype, we have to talk every day. We use Gmail every day. We use Google Calendar, a lot of these online services that my team has to struggle through. Thank you, Evan Saunders, CEO and co-founder of Attract China, an organization that helps businesses in America attract Chinese tourists through online marketing. Thanks a lot, Evan. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, we were trawling the Internet and came across this nugget about trawling the Internet. Thanks to the Wall Street Journal's tech blog, All Things Digital, Swedish software engineer Johan Gunnarsson has published a list of the most popular Wikipedia pages in 2012, language by language. Topping the most viewed page in English is the article for Facebook with more than 32.6 million hits. Now, why click on Wikipedia instead of just going to Facebook itself? Well, there might be a number of reasons. Maybe because the company went public this year. It launched its new timeline feature. And there's always the debate over privacy. Or maybe it's because the Wikipedia brand is so familiar that when people searched for Facebook, they clicked on the Wikipedia entry instead. There were some more unusual most-viewed pages in Gunnarsson's research. Many netizens want to know what Wiki is saying about them. So the number one hit in Russian, Greek, and Swedish was Russia, Greece, and Sweden. The most visited page in German is all about cul-de-sacs. Go figure. And the entry for the TV show Grey's Anatomy topped Wikipedia searches in Italian. Other interesting highlights, tea, as in the drink, was the most visited page in Danish. And Ukrenele, also known as Japanese holly, was searched the most in French. As for the Japanese themselves, they spent most of the time cruising Wikipedia for adult movie actresses. Why not? Check out what else made the list. We've got more of Gunnarsson's Wikipedia findings at theworld.org. France is home to Western Europe's biggest Jewish and Muslim populations. The two largely live side by side, but they're often divided. Tensions have been rising since last March when a man named Mohamed Marah gunned down seven people, including three children, at a Jewish school in Toulouse. Marah was later killed in a firefight with French police. Marat's case is an extreme one. 
but there have been an alarming number of anti-Semitic attacks across France this year. Most of the assailants were identified as young Muslim men. Amy Bracken brings us this report about people trying to address the problem. I'm on a rather unusual bus driving through working-class suburbs of Paris. The 1970s vehicle is plastered with colorful posters with slogans of peace and a banner above the windshield saying, Jews and Muslims, no to discrimination. I can see pedestrians gawking, and that's the point. A rabbi and an imam are taking this bus on a tour of France. They're visiting Muslim and Jewish communities to promote mutual understanding. Rabbi Michel Serfati is the organizer. He's been doing this for seven years, and he says it's not getting any easier. The Juifs, aujourd'hui, vivent dans la peur. Jews today live in fear. When I tell people I'm going into this kind of pressure cooker, everyone is afraid for me. Everything goes well, but the reality of the teaching of hatred is incontestable. We've been told of children as young as six years old who reek of hatred for Jews, reek of anti-Semitism. They learn it from their parents. Outside a marketplace, Serfati and Imam Mohammed Azizi strike up conversation with a woman in a headscarf. They show her a booklet on customs common to Jews and Muslims. The woman says she gets it, but she's still upset by the images she sees on TV of what's happening to the Palestinians. Serfati urges people to focus on what's happening in France instead of the Middle East. But the issue keeps coming up. 16-year-old Jihan Lawi stops to check out the bus. She's a Muslim student at a Catholic school. She says she thinks the tour is a good idea because there are tensions among her peers. She says people post things on Facebook about Israel and Palestine, and it gets everyone worked up. Serfati notes that that kind of tension occasionally erupts into anti-Jewish violence. The rate of attacks goes up and down, depending on what's happening in the Middle East and on the economic crisis in France. In the neighborhoods where the schools aren't working and people feel isolated, anti-Semitism develops because Jews are assumed to be at the head of the media, at the head of the banks, at the head of the power. So people blame the Jews. And this is a difficult time, according to Sami Gozlan. Gozlan heads France's National Bureau of Vigilance against anti-Semitism. He says anti-Jewish incidents have spiked since the Marat shootings in Toulouse. Aujourd'hui, les Juifs évitent de sortir tard. Today, he says, Jews avoid going out late, going to certain neighborhoods, wearing yarmulkes. He says some Muslims who share Murat's extreme views have taken inspiration from him. In September, masked men threw grenades into a kosher grocery store in the heavily Jewish and Muslim suburb of Sarcelles, north of Paris. One person was injured. Police say a Muslim convert killed in an October raid was implicated in the grenade attack. On this afternoon, there are plenty of shoppers at the grocery store, and the owner of the kosher market next door says the grenade attack was an isolated incident. He says we never have any problems. Sometimes there's some anti-Semitic graffiti about what's happening with Palestine, but City Hall cleans it off pretty quickly. Still, some Muslim leaders are taking steps to counteract the most negative perceptions. Hassan Chalgoumi led a delegation of 17 imams to Israel last month. 
They met President Shimon Peres and visited the graves of the three children killed by Marat. We wanted to show a positive side of France, of diversity, of coexistence, because they don't know us. There are Israelis who think all French Muslims are Marat. I met youths who said to me, you're all like Marat. And many Muslims in France fear that their fellow Frenchmen think the same thing. One Moroccan shop owner told me the police treat young Muslim men as future Marats. But while Marat was clearly an extreme case, some see him as a product of his environment. One of his brothers says they were raised to hate Jews. In the chic Paris neighborhood of Le Marais, a fashion designer named Maud Perle runs a boutique. Perle is the great-granddaughter of Alfred Dreyfus, That's Captain Dreyfus, who was jailed on trumped-up charges of treason and became a symbol of French anti-Semitism at the turn of the last century. Perle says when she was a girl, her grandmother told her about Dreyfus, but she really felt a connection to him when Catholic classmates shunned her after they found out she was Jewish. I was very marked by that experience. I suddenly found myself at the heart of a story that was repeating itself. And while she says overt anti-Semitism seemed to go away for decades, it resurfaced in 2000 with the Palestinian Intifada. I think that we've let the situation deteriorate for so long that it will be very difficult to fix it. But we absolutely must. And that's why Rabbi Michel Serfati rides around on an old bus, trying to close the gap between neighbors of different faiths. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Paris. Coming up later, the music of Leonard Cohen, the faith of the Goths, and our need to belong on The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org. And by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, now playing in select theaters. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. General Norman Schwarzkopf died yesterday at the age of 78. He's being remembered in the U.S. as the man who led Allied forces to victory in the Gulf War in 1991. That war was largely seen here as having liberated Kuwait after an invasion by the former Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. The view from the Middle East is a bit more complex. On the line with us now is journalist Jane Araf. During the Gulf War, Jane, I know that you were reporting for Reuters from Jordan. Take us back to that time as General Schwarzkopf and the Bush administration were prosecuting this war and what you saw and heard at the time. Well, there was, as you remember, quite a lot of run-up to the war. But when the war did start, I think nobody really expected the extent of the bombardment. That terribly devastating ground war, 100 hours of it. And during that ground war and the associated air campaign and the sorties, they managed to devastate the infrastructure of an entire country. So there were thousands and thousands of Iraqis and other nationalities pressed up against that border, some of them starting to come through and telling terrible tales of what was happening inside Iraq. Tell us some of the things that they were telling you, and to what extent General Schwarzkopf and his forces were responsible for those things. 
Well, you know, General Schwarzkopf in Iraq was seen as basically the military man who was carrying out the policy of George Bush Sr. And this was very much seen as Bush's war. But in terms of that military policy, it was really those airstrikes, those bombings that targeted the infrastructure, roads and bridges, water treatment plants, and most of all, electricity. They had known war before, of course. I mean, sadly, they're used to war, but they had never known anything like this. So you're talking about the people of Iraq there. What was Schwarzkopf's reputation in the region after American troops were called back home by the Bush administration? Some said very prematurely because Saddam Hussein was still alive and active. What was the reaction on the ground? The reaction to calling in the troops was essentially one of betrayal. In the South, the Shias had been told through radio broadcasts in the region, funded and sponsored by the United States, that the rebellion was growing, that it could topple Saddam Hussein. And they went out in the streets and they tried to bring about an uprising that could actually threaten him. That didn't work, of course. And in the North, of course, U.S. officials had told Jalal Talabani and other Kurdish leaders that they would support them if they launched an uprising. Jalal Talabani, who's in poor health himself these days, tells a story of waiting for that phone call from Washington, promised airstrikes, the promised air support that never came. That led to almost 2 million Kurds fleeing to the Turkish border in the winter and thousands dying. Is there any sector in the Middle East that holds General Schwarzkopf as a popular figure or as a hero, as uh, many in the U.S. military and defense circles do? Absolutely. Saddam Hussein, it's, it's hard to put forth the power that he held at that time, and not just the power internally, but the power that he held in the region as a force to be feared. So Norman Schwarzkopf in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, of course, was absolutely seen as a hero. Jane Araf is a freelance journalist based in Iraq for the Christian Science Monitor and Al Jazeera International. She's reported from Iraq since 1991. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. A new documentary takes a look at another disturbing and bloody chapter of history. It's called The Act of Killing. It chronicles the period in Indonesia after a failed coup in 1965 when a half million suspected communists were rounded up and slaughtered. The subject is disturbing, but so is the way the film was made. Danish director Joshua Oppenheimer gave the camera to the people who did the killing and had them reenact scenes from the past. The film was produced over seven years, and its debut is forcing Indonesians to confront their most unpleasant of demons. Kate Lamb reports from Jakarta. Joshua Oppenheimer got the idea for the documentary while making a movie about plantation workers on Sumatra. He couldn't understand why the workers were too scared to start a union. It turned out their family members had been murdered for joining labor unions in the 1960s, and many of the killers still lived in the same village. So Oppenheimer paid one of the killers a visit. He was shocked by the stories the man told and the way he told them. With his 10-year-old granddaughter sitting there looking on, he proceeded to demonstrate how he would beat up people and drown them in an irrigation ditch and then bury them in mass graves around the plantation. Oppenheimer decided to make a film that let the perpetrators tell their stories in their own way. This is the sound of the killers directing a reenactment of an attack on a village. Yes, the actual killers act out the mass murders they committed decades ago. 
Anwar Congo was a charismatic member of a militia group with strong political ties. It's clear Anwar enjoys reliving his sadistic glory days. Reviewing takes of the film, the only thing he seems to find upsetting is a poor wardrobe choice. He says he never would have worn white trousers back then because jeans were better at hiding blood. But as he goes deeper into the filmmaking process, Oppenheimer says Anwar Congo begins to change. I think the big crisis for Anwar and the real story, dramatic story in the film, we gave Anwar the chance to paint his own portrait. We helped him do it and he would paint a little and then he would stand back and watch what he painted or watch the footage. It's like the artist stepping back from the canvas to see the picture. And he was faced very quickly with a dilemma. Does he make a beautiful heroic portrait or does he actually show the truth? And I think a part of Anwar, as he went through the process, felt the need to show the truth. By the end of the film, Anwar becomes violently ill as he recalls what he did at the site of an execution. It's not only Anwar coming to grips with what happened in 1965. Indonesia is also starting to examine the anti-communist purges that led to the death of half a million people. After a four-year investigation, an independent human rights commission concluded in July that the massacres were a gross violation of human rights. Nor Collis is the head of the commission. He says the movie might help Indonesia address the past. The movie teach us that in the 1965 and the year after that, a killing and other gross human rights violation, it was true. But not everyone is so sure Indonesia is ready. The Attorney General's office has rejected the Human Rights Commission's report, refusing to conduct an official investigation. And some Indonesians still don't think what happened back then was such a bad thing. This for you. Okay. I will read your name. Slamat Effendi belongs to one of the country's largest Islamic organizations, Naratul Ilama. Its youth group, Ansor, played a major part in the killings. He gives me a book called Global Catastrophe, basically a diatribe against the ills of communism in Indonesia. The events of 1965, he says, have to be considered in context when communism was a real threat here. Ansar committed their actions in response to a situation. At that time, the situation was to kill or be killed. That was similar to what happened in 1948, during the fight for independence. As the film makes waves on the international circuit, it may become harder to continue to claim the killings were justified. But at this point, it's not clear when, or even if, the movie will be released in Indonesia. For The World, this is Kate Lamb, Jakarta. Acting out memories of murder, you can see clips from Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, striving for fair trade gold. Spend a bit more to mine in an environmentally sensitive way. Our bet is that we can attach a value to it and we can get consumers to recognize it. It should be enough. The forests and the ecosystems should be more valuable uh, than the gold itself. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at medtronic.com.
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Gold has long been seen as an economic safe haven in uncertain times, so it's no surprise that the demand for gold and the prices have surged in recent years. Our appetite for gold, though, can have toxic consequences. In Latin America, for instance, some miners still use mercury to produce gold in a process that releases huge amounts of the poisonous metal into the environment. But a handful of activists there are leading a drive to promote more responsible gold mining. Here is reporter John Otis from Colombia. In the northern Colombian department of Chocó, Alfredo Hurtado leads me across a bulldozed stretch of jungle the size of a football field. It's a former gold mining site, and it's littered with slag heaps and pits of contaminated water. The miners just want the gold, Hurtado says. They don't care if the land is turned upside down. Hurtado is a gold buyer, and he says this kind of wasteland is a common sight in Colombia. The country ranks among the world's top 15 gold producers, and about half of its bullion is extracted by small-scale miners and illegal prospectors who often leave behind a ravaged and badly polluted landscape. One of the biggest problems is mercury. Many miners use the toxic metal to separate gold from the ore in which it's found. But exposure to mercury can cause serious and permanent health problems, including brain damage and birth defects. And Colombians are exposed to huge amounts of it. A recent UN report found that Colombia is the world's largest mercury polluter per capita from mining. But these days, the country is also ground zero for a new movement to clean up small-scale mining. It's called Oro Verde, or Green Gold. One project is on display right here in Chocó. Alongside a small mountain river, miner Luis Palomino picks a few leaves from a balsa tree. He then stirs them in a wooden bowl filled with water and sediment from the river. The leaves do the same thing as mercury, but pose no health risk. They create a soapy film that attaches to the lighter minerals and can be washed away, leaving behind heavier flecks of gold. It's a technique passed down by Palomino's ancestors, former African slaves. Palomino says the technique is slower and extracts less gold, but he has no interest in using mercury. He says, we've mined gold like this all our lives. Because this technique is chemical-free, Palomino earns a 15% premium over the world price for gold through an outfit called Fair Trade and Fair Mind. Just received a package this morning. That is Fair Trade Gold. This promotional spot celebrates the first Fair Trade and Fair Mind ring produced in 2011 in London. Felipe Arango, director of the Green Gold Project, says fair trade and fair mine gold costs more, but he believes there's a market for it. Our bet is that if we can attach a value to it and we can get consumers to recognize it, it should be enough. The forests and the ecosystems that are around these mines should be more valuable uh, than the gold itself. The idea of these and other efforts is to do for gold mining what the organic and fair trade movements are doing for food production. This is a sector that can transform itself. 
That's Lena Villa, who heads the Alliance for Responsible Mining in Medellin, Colombia. Her organization promotes techniques that cut back on mercury use, but don't eliminate it altogether. Things like better storage and handling techniques, which can reduce accidents and toxic emissions. Miners who adopt these techniques are eligible for a 10% bonus from Fair Trade and Fair Mind. Miners are willing to change and to do things in a different way. So once you have like that evidence that change is possible, not embracing change doesn't make a lot of sense. Fair Trade and Fair Mind hopes to sign up legions of miners across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Small-scale prospectors like these make up 90% of the world's gold mining labor force. But so-called responsible mining has been slow to catch on. Mining with less mercury takes longer and is less profitable even with the premiums. That may be why just 1,400 miners in Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia have so far joined the Fair Trade and Fair Mind movement. Supporters aren't discouraged, though. Green Gold's Felipe Arango points out that similar campaigns also started slowly. We've seen fair trade in coffee and in chocolate grow exponentially. This is the beginning. Right now the volumes are small, but we're starting to see consumers and the mining industry paying attention to a different way of doing things. For the miners in Chocó, those different ways of doing things bring more than health advantages. As she takes a break from shoveling, green gold miner Maribeth Mosquera points to patches of land that have been restored after excavation and now sprout lime and guava trees. The premiums she and her family receive for their eco-friendlier approach have also helped them build fish ponds with mercury-free water to cultivate tilapia. Yes, mining like this is harder, she says, but mercury would kill the fish. It would affect everything. Working without mercury is better. For The World, I'm John Otis, Choco Department, Colombia. Germans love to read and write thrillers, crime fiction, detective stories, murder and intrigue. Between 400 and 500 crime novels or creamies are published every year in the country. There are piles and piles of creamy festivals, radio plays, fan clubs and bookshops. Yet German thrillers have never cracked the U.S. market, unlike their Scandinavian cousins, think the girl with the dragon tattoo. Susan Stone went digging at a book festival in Frankfurt to unravel the mystery of why the German thriller doesn't catch on. German publisher Ulrike Rodi points out the international hits as she pages through her company's foreign rights list. One of our authors has been translated into many, many European languages. Others have been translated into Dutch, French, and Czech. There's always something new coming up. In its 23 years in business, Grafit Verlag has never had a book from its catalog translated into English. Rodi says they've been told that even Graffit's best-selling crimis are too local, too regional, just too German. Yet in the past few years, English-language readers have fallen in love with thrillers from Germany's northern neighbors, Sweden and Norway. Nordic writers like Henning Menkel, Stieg Larsen and Joe Nesbo have a big presence on U.S. and U.K. bestseller lists, but not German crime writers. Vale Benediktsdottir of Icelandic publisher Forlaget says it's not that there aren't great books coming out of Germany. We look to other countries for suspense, but for quality literature we look to Germany. Where I work, we publish Günter Grass. We love it. 
it doesn't matter even though Germany is not number one uh, on our list for suspense. There are so many other things in the world than thrillers. Another issue is that very few books of any kind are translated from German into English. This year, the number was 50. The year before, only 40. Some publishing houses say they don't have enough readers of German to prepare reports on untranslated manuscripts. There is one German detective who's hit it big in the U.S., Bernie Gunther. He's in a series from Scottish writer Philip Kerr, published by Random House. The books are set in the years around World War II, a period many contemporary German authors prefer to avoid, but U.K. and U.S. readers seem to love. Jörg Riechenbrauch says despite the popularity of the Bernie Gunther books, Random House has had no success with German thriller translations. Ten, fifteen years ago, Scandinavian crime writing was nothing in the UK. Suddenly it became a trend. Who knows whether tomorrow French or German crime writing will be the next trend. We are in this industry because we are paid to predict these trends and uh, we miserably fail. One publisher is betting big on German crime fiction. Minotaur Books, a division of St. Martin's Publishing Group, is bringing out the book Snow White Must Die in the U.S. next month. It's by Nele Neuhaus and is already a bestseller all over Europe and in South Korea. Neuhaus started out self-publishing her books. When her series of police procedurals became popular, a large German publisher took her on. Her novels dwell on day-to-day life in the mountainous Taunus area near Frankfurt. But she says it's the people, not the settings, that connect with the global audience. Normally, um, the main character of a book in a crime story is uh, only working all the time, or he is drinking or smoking too much, anything like this. But my characters are uh, people, um, human beings the reader can feel with. Amazon Crossing has picked up Neuhaus's first novel, a financial thriller called Swimming with Sharks, which is set in New York. But Neuhaus says she's happiest writing about her homeland. She hopes Snow White Must Die will be a chance to introduce contemporary Germany beyond its borders. I think this is mostly important for us in Germany to keep our identity and not to say, no, I'm German, but I'm sorry for that. They kill themselves in Germany uh, the same way they do it in U.S. or in Sweden. German crime stories need to have a chance, international chance, but we will see if they are able to swim. (laughs) With the sharks. (laughs) With the sharks. (laughs) Snow White Must Die is actually the fourth book in Neuhaus's police series, but it's the one with the highest sales and the catchiest title. Minotaur has planned a major marketing and publicity campaign leading up to the book's release on January 15th. For The World, I'm Susan Stone, Frankfurt. Today's GeoQuiz is worth three points. We're looking for two destinations today. The first one's pretty easy if you follow the NFL. It's the stadium where the New York Jets football team plays. Not too tough, right? Well, the other place we would like you to name is a bit trickier. It's the fourth largest city in Norway. It's in the southwest and widely referred to as the oil capital of Norway. And your final clue? It's home to a man who might be the next kicker to sign with the New York Jets. This guy made an amazingly funny video of himself kicking field goal after field goal, and it caught the attention of the Jets. We're going to hear from the man himself in a minute about his incredible kicking skills. You think you know the answer? Time's running out on the clock. You might want to punt.
So the first place we're looking for is the home of the New York Jets, which is the MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Second place is the Norwegian city of Stavanger. What do they have in common? Stavanger happens to be the home of Hovard Rugland. Hovard Rugland recently went to East Rutherford to try out to be a kicker for the Jets. It all started with a video on YouTube. In it, Rugland nails ridiculously long and complicated field goals. And he kicks with what appears to be dead-on accuracy at any number of targets, some from seemingly impossible angles. Suffice it to say, Horvat Rugland, the video has gone viral with well over a million and a half views. The video is absolutely amazing. You've got some mad skills. Uh, How on earth did you learn to kick like this? I started kicking uh, a year and a half ago after I stopped playing soccer. And I needed something, a new hobby. And I've watched the last few Super Bowls because that's... uh, only game they show on national television here in Norway, and I bought myself a football and started kicking. When I played soccer, I had always had a very strong left leg, so I thought that could maybe be something I could be pretty good at. Uh, You are, and we see it time and time again on this video. You try some kind of interesting and maybe in some cases strange things. You're kicking the football to, I guess it's your brother, is that right, floating by in a boat? Yeah, and then you kicked to your brother again, who's driving past into a car. Uh, where else did you kick? I kicked it up on a bridge, kicked it over a lake, and just a few trick kicks on a football field. A few tricks on a football field, yes. More than a few. You're like at the 50-yard line. So you're doing six 50-yard kicks through the goalposts. So you're getting six field goals in a row. And I don't know, was it was it edited? Did you just take the successful ones? Is seeing no, it, it, that was uh, six in a row. I just wanted to show that I could be consistent. Yeah, not bad. Um, And then you have one at the 60-yard line as well. Now, this kind of skill, of course, is what brought you to the attention of the New York Jets. Somehow they saw your video, as did like 1.5 million people because it went viral. Uh, You had a tryout with the Jets. How did that go? It went very well. It started in uh, early November. I got an email from uh, the Jets. They talked to me, and I told them I had no experience whatsoever with a team or a coach, so they wanted me to traveled to San Diego and worked out with a uh, kicking coach named Michael Houston. Trained with him for two and a half weeks before I went to uh, New York right before Christmas and had a tryout. He wanted me to come back, so I think it went very well. Now, you probably know as well, Hobart, that uh, as a kicker, it's like the most stressful position out there because you're going to have 250-pound monster guys trying to squish you when you've got a second and a half to kick the ball uh, before they get a chance. Is that something you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that. I'm almost 250 pounds myself, so that's maybe an advantage. Let's hope I just get the kickoff before they even come close, so that shouldn't be a problem. How often do you practice? How did you get so good? The conditions for practice in Norway isn't very good. That's why it's important for me to get back to the United States because outside here it's about half a yard with snow and it's very cold, so I can't kick outside. But in summer, I've been practicing like three or four times a week. You can see Hovart Rugland's video on our website, theworld.org. Keep up the good work, and, uh, and we hope you get that offer from the Jets. Thank you very much. Our global hit and a goodbye coming up on PRI.
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. We're going to end today's program talking about light and dark. A couple of years ago, I spent the summer in Britain, most of it in Cambridge, England. It's a beautiful cobblestone place built around the venerable University of Cambridge. Around just about every corner, there's a church. One day, a friend and I walked by the medieval Church of St. Edward, King and Martyr. There was a sign in front that announced a goth service every other Tuesday night. The next Tuesday, it said, the featured music would be Leonard Cohen's. We thought we'd read the sign wrong or that something was lost in translation. Maybe goth was someone's name because it couldn't be the Visigoths. We could picture it, people in black leather and thick black eyeshadow sitting in the pews of this medieval church. That would be just too bizarre. So what? Tuesday night, I went. The church was cold and stony and cavernous, but despite all that, kind of welcoming. There was a man with red spiral curls. He was dressed in tight black leather. He was stretched out on the altar floor, lighting tea candles in the shape of a big cross. There was a dark-haired woman in a low-cut bustier with long black sleeves, fishnet stockings, and black boots with fringe. There was a stout man with a graying beard testing out the CD player. His name is Reverend Malcolm Geit. A few minutes later, he slipped on his clerical robe as he led the service. It was a small gathering. There were a few older women who seemed like they'd been there before. One of them asked for prayers for her daughter, who she said was about to make a very difficult decision. It didn't seem right to bring a microphone and recorder into the church. Anyway, I was there just because I was curious. But I went back to St. Edward Church about a week later. This time, I brought my recorder and asked Reverend Geit to tell the story about his service. The way the service works, obviously it's a Eucharist, it's, it's a celebration of Holy Communion, remembering the death and, uh, and resurrection of Jesus on the Last Supper. But at the core of it, in terms of the changes and the weekly teaching, I sit down with a number of Goths who come to it, and they choose a theme that they want to explore. And then they go and make a track list. They find from Goth bands, from Sisters of Mercy and um, Jesus and Mary Chain, and even on occasions challenge for me, Marilyn Manson, uh, all kinds of uh, people that they feel are dealing with the issue at stake. Meantime, I go off and try and find Bible passages that I think deal with the same issue. We meet together, we put together a track list and we perhaps a poem and all the lyrics. And then the sermon, when it comes, is a conversation between those two things. Sometimes that can be very powerful both ways. It can give a song new resonance for those who've often heard it. And it can give a Bible passage completely new resonance for those who've often heard it. One of the things those of us in the church heard the night of the goth service was the music of 78-year-old Canadian poet, songwriter, and singer Leonard Cohen. It was a Cohen CD that Reverend Guide had been fiddling with before he took to the pulpit. The whole service was called There is a Crack in Everything, the spirituality of Leonard Cohen, referring to his beautiful uh, lyric in Anthem, There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. To some people, it might be a bit shocking to bring secular music into the church. Reverend Geit thinks it's a way to reach those who are not moved by the hymnal. First of all, I think Leonard Cohen is a really fine poet, uh, and he has a constant religious frame of reference. And he does, like some neglected biblical writers, like the author of The Song of Songs, one of the things he does is fuse our deepest intimacies. So he's very profound about human intimacy, about love life, about sex life, and often in the same verses of the very same songs. 
profound about our intimacy with God and the way those different intimacies are related. Now, a church that isn't going to be clear and upfront about the way those intimacies link isn't going to be talking the language of reality to people. The goth service gets people to open their hearts, he says, including hearts that are broken, lost in obsession or addiction. One of our Bible passages was about Saul afflicted with the evil spirit from the Lord, we're told. Saul's rages and um, uncontrollable moments of personality change, really. And how David came and played the harp for him. And when David played the harp and sang, the evil spirit went out from Saul. And we connected with the ways in which Leonard Cohen has a, a song or a music which does seem to connect deeply with what's hurts in people and bring some kind of healing and of course we played the famous song hallelujah which alludes to this i heard there was a secret chord that david played and it pleased the lord um but it which goes on of course to to talk about the hidden light in even the apparently secular um where he says there's a blaze of light in every word it doesn't matter which you heard the holy or the broken hallelujah and uh, the way in which he talks about some kind of light breaking in through our very weaknesses. There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken. Hallelujah. I mean, the very opening words of the whole service are from John's Gospel that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it. But in the confidence of that light shining there, we do examine darkness and certainly depression and um, suicidal thoughts are issues that I think a number of people that come regularly to goth have had to deal with and wrestle with or they've had friends who've had to deal with and wrestle with those things. I think we live in a society which actually represses sorrow a great deal of time. And then when the repressed sorrow breaks out, can't cope at all. And people go from one extreme to the other. They go from a false mask of happiness to a slough of despond so deep that they can't get out of it. And that's because they've lost the power of lament lamentation that doesn't destroy hope. The night that Reverend Malcolm Guyte conducted the goth service, something happened. I was sitting close enough to take part, but far enough from the altar to feel separate. It was just more comfortable that way. But when it came time for the Eucharist, the time to approach the altar to receive the wafer, I looked up from the pew and saw somebody signaling to me from the altar. It was the woman in the bustier. You want me? I said. She walked up to me and extended her hand. I wasn't sure what the tradition was in this church, but she whispered it to me. We walked to the altar together, knelt next to each other, and she told me what to do. I guess I sort of knew anyhow. She leaned toward me to give me a hug and then walked me back to my seat when it was all done. I realized that in this service, meant for those who feel marginalized, who don't belong, she invited me to belong. This program, The World, is all about exploring where we as a country and we as individuals belong in the wider world. It has been a privilege like no other to connect with people on the other side of the planet with whom we might think we have nothing in common. And it's been a life lesson to see how people who have much to lament in their lives don't let lamentation destroy their hope or their will. That gives me hope.
This is my last program as anchor of the world. It is very tough to move on. The people who make this show happen are wickedly smart and entertaining and generous in spirit and deed. They rock my world, and you do too. The world's theme music is composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International